everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd, and you're listening to the latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly roundup podcast where we throw at you guys the best segments of the week from the Fantano channel, from the Needle Drop channel, and this episode is a stacked one. For one, we have several new reviews, a few very positive, very celebratory reviews. One of the new Flume mixtape, Hi, This is Flume, which is a pretty incredible, hard-hitting, experimental mix of uh, wonky and glitch hop and a lot of other things. It's absolutely insane. The tracks flow together so well. We'll be talking about that. Also, the new Matmos record, Plastic Anniversary, a Plunderphonics experimental electronic record that uh, pretty much consists of samples of plastic. Uh, Also going to be talking about the New Dave album, Psychodrama, the UK rapper, is out with a new album of a very personal, uh, very emotional tracks. I'll be dissecting that. I'm also actually going to give you guys a segment where I go over in depth my three-tiered process through which I I listen to an album. Uh, We also have a few track reviews, one of the new Logic single, one of the new Tame Impala single, and uh, I will be also uh, throwing in a discussion about whether or not Billie Eilish is an industry plant, industry darling Billie Eilish, is she an industry plant, and and why or why it doesn't matter. Uh, We're also going to throw at you guys, of course, an exclusive clip from our Let's Argue series uh, that is, again, exclusive to this episode of the podcast, and uh, that is going to be it for this episode. So strap in, get ready. Here we go. Uh, ba <sighs> And it is time for a review of the new Flume mixtape. Hi, this is Flume. This is a new out-of-the-blue mixtape from Australian music producer Flume, who we have not heard from in a longer project capacity in in quite a while, not since 2016 when we saw Flume drop his last full-length album, Skin. A project that presented Flume pulling from the same base of underground electronic ideas that we knew him to do up until this point, the glitch hop, the wonky stuff, the future bass, but then kind of amping it up and giving it this gigantic pristine EDM-style presentation, I guess trying to bring himself and these sounds to a wider audience. And even if the critical reception of this record may have been a little mixed, I still think Flume's plan on this album worked as this record did kind of grow his profile with a big sound and even bigger list of features. People like Vince Staples and Raekwon and Aluna George at the time, they've, they've sort of fallen off recently. Little Dragon, even Beck. Now, around a time where you would be expecting expecting Flume to have a new album coming out around the corner. Instead, he's coming out with a mixtape. And also, instead of reaching for that brass ring of commercial appeal, it's kind of like he's going more experimental on this one. Maybe it's him feeling the freedom to let loose on the mixtape format, I'm not sure. But what I can say is I think Flume's sound palettes on this record are a lot more varied than they've been in the past, more creative and thought-provoking, feels a lot less like an outright commercial bastardization of these sounds, and more like an embrace of what makes them weird, while also attempting to elevate them into space for an intergalactic journey. The track Tracks on this mixtape are a little on the short side, yes. Nothing as lengthy or even as labored over as a lot of the material on Skin. But Flume creatively transitions these songs into one another throughout this entire mixtape, so it does 
feel like a pretty holistic and connected experience. For example, the plucky and pitched keys, the factory floor beats and grime rappers, so all of them meld perfectly on the song High Beams and create a pretty gritty and gorgeous sound, which the song Jewel transitions from amazingly, almost like the song were a compositional extension of the previous one, with its gorgeous and glitchy synth melodies, what sounds like a religious chant being fed through a weird robot filter. Also, the futuristic and bright drones of Dreamtime transition really seamlessly into the kind of stunning remix of Sophie's Is It Cold in the Water, where Flume teams up with EEPROM and gives the track a bit more variation and a lot more of a percussive backbone. And even though some of the beats added into this track are kind of rigid in their groove, I, I do kind of like the noisy, sharp, abrasive quality they bring to the cut. There are also a load of tracks on the back end of this thing that are about one minute and change that all connect in this one elongated mix of industrial banger beats, harmonious alien synths, weird distortions, weird vocal samples, a few unlikely nods to different electronic music styles. The song Mud features these trap hi-hats rattling away against these walls of sub-zero tundra synthesizers that are so frigid they're hot, it's like dry ice. The song 71M3 has these stuttering wonky beats matched with some forlorn and strange vocal samples that sound like they're lifted out of a, an old Crystal Castles record. The song Vitality has one of the weirdest mixes of ideas on the entire record, this classic hip-hop groove coming out of the beat, all these nasty metallic timbres on the percussion, and then a bunch of ethereal tones that feel like they're coming from a vaporwave song. Flume also goes kind of lo-fi on the track Upgrade, which has quick hit after quick hit of these distorted, shimmering, icy synth arpeggios, and occasional techno rhythm popping in for a second, and there are a few great features on this mixtape as well, like Sophie, who is not just remixed, but uh, featured too. On the song Voices, the makeup of this track is a little mysterious. It might not have grabbed my attention if not for the feature credits on it because it does feel like a a weird little vocal interlude that is not one of the boldest or loudest cuts on the record. It's just like a low-key moment in between two of the more engaging and busy tracks on the album, but still a beautiful and strange oasis on this record and, and transitions to and from effectively from the tracks surrounding it. Also, the amazing JPEG Mafia verse that is dropped on this tape is really impressive too. I'm actually uh, really surprised to hear not only some of his hardest bars in a while on this thing. You know, there are a lot of interesting bits and tracks just kind of flying by at the speed of light on high this is flume but the strength of this project really comes down to how all of the songs connect to each other just to create this weird linear sonic adventure a whole ton of colorful weird ear candy given the release of projects like more life over the past few years where we've heard some pretty major artists essentially turn their cutting room floor into a record into a mixtape into a whatever this project right here next to me on the wall is a nice, refreshing change of pace from the mediocrity uh, that we've been hearing from records like that. Nothing on this mixtape is too overdone as it was on Skin, and maybe some of what we're hearing here may in fact just be like, cobbled together. But sometimes the magic of what you're doing comes down more to how you present it and how you execute it. Yes, there are a lot of weird, short, one-off moments throughout this project, but they're all guided in a way where they reinforce each other really well. And again, it is worth noting that 
Overall, the material on this thing is a kind of experimental change of pace for Flume, which I hope to hear him indulge a bit more in in the future. I'm not under the impression that this is one of the greatest or deepest or most cutting-edge uh, projects I've heard ever. Certainly it is rough around the edges. It's kind of lightning in a bottle in ways that also benefit it, but also disadvantage it a little bit. Would love to hear Flume continuing to sound this adventurous, but with a bigger and a better sound on future projects. Feeling a light eight on this one. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Matmos record, Plastic Anniversary. Formed in 1994, the musical duo known as Matmos has always consisted of Drew Daniel and Martin Schmidt. And while not always appreciated for it, the duo over the years has built up one of the weirdest and most eclectic discographies in electronic music. Between collaborations with people like us, as well as so percussion, strange concept albums that do things like try to find the common ground between American and medieval folk music, sampling very various kinds of surgery. Also their last full-length album over here, which I loved, uh, which sampled a washing machine, specifically their washing machine, as well as also not sampling anything at all, like the entirely synthesized Supreme Balloon. Matmos's discography covers a pretty wide range of left-field bases, from IDM and Glitch, Plunderphonics, Sound Collage, Folktronica, Musique Concrete, but if you could tie the duo's sound to anything, it's their incredibly unique approach to sampling and sound manipulation and pairing almost each album of theirs up with a pretty interesting concept. And Plastic Anniversary is no exception to that rule. Essentially, this album revolves around the very heavy sampling of plastics. Plastic. It is all around us. It saves lives. It fills our oceans. It's destroying our environment. And it's literally a part of every step of the process of me getting my reviews done, too. So why not make an album based around it as well? Now, like usual with Matmos, some of the source material for the samples on these tracks is pretty obvious. They even go as far as to hint toward it in the titles, like the persistent sounds of billiard balls clacking together on the track Billiard Balls and Synthetic Fat. The sharp plastic smack of those billiard balls on this track provides for some very uh, sharp and prickly percussive bits as the duo essentially progresses on this track through a very strange and mysterious piece of IDM. Then there's also Thermoplastic Riot Shield, whose percussive sections sound like they are lifted from the sound of smacking a thermoplastic riot shield. And then there are instances of sampling on this record that are uh, a little less obvious, like on the opening track, Breaking Bread, which according to a Thrill Jockey press release, uh, I saw actually consists of, of the sound of breaking records, specifically from the band Bread. So breaking records by a band named Bread breaking bread, which is honestly the most novel way of, of sampling a record I, I think I've heard in a long time. I could list off every weird sampling idea implemented throughout this album, but honestly, uh, Matmos's importance is based less on that and more on their ability to manipulate these sounds into actually compelling and enjoyable musical compositions. Again, to go back to the opening track, Breaking Bread, it is a fun and thrilling and funky opener loaded with these squeaky and grunty bits of rhythm and bass. Even though it's a relatively short track, it's still packed with quite a few shifts and segues and passages. Sounds like the most danceable thing that you could potentially get out of like a, an experimental chemical lab where you lock a bunch of mad scientists in it. And this is essentially what they concoct. The song The Crying Pill is interestingly titled, considering that it is packed with these descending, wailing tones that sound like just 
blood dripping down a wall in the middle of like a horror movie trailer. The eerie tension of this track is built up even further with these orchestral sized hits of percussion. Also some really bold arpeggios too. This is maybe one of the most cinematic tracks of the entire record. And oddly enough, the chemically synthesized silicone gel implant has uh, some melodic and rhythmic grooves that kind of remind me of bits from the Duo Supreme Balloon album, which is not necessarily a bad thing given that is one of my favorite Matmos records, period. And also, even if there's a touch of compositional overlap between this track and that record, this song does have a pretty different sound palette, much more prickly and plucky, essentially sounding like the duo is trying to soundtrack the hustle and bustle of a, a microscopic city or a colony of ants going about doing what they do. The classical influences on this record fade back in on the title track. Sounds like some really beautiful triumphant horn sections, colored with these sputtering alien wails and tones and quick bits of percussion. Just a very strange sound palette organized for a very uplifting purpose. We get a pretty nice contrast on the next track, Thermoplastic Riot Shield, which has these heavy, crushing, almost industrial hits of percussion and noise. Definitely one of the wildest things that Matmos have ever delivered in their entire discography. Meanwhile, there's kind of a shift in tone on fanfare for polyethylene, waste containers, and collapse of the fourth kingdom, where both have this very rhythmic and primal quality to them, almost like I'm listening to a drum circle or a drum line. It's like the flow of the album is bringing us to a point where we've reached the death of society and now we're suffering through a plastic dystopia which has brought us back to a state of tribalism or something. And the album gets even more rudimentary and I guess primordial on the closing track, Plastisphere, which is essentially a sound collage and an ambient piece where all these plastic samples are culminated to create uh, the sound of like a beach. The waves whooshing, the wind blowing, birds calling. It sounds like that, but it's not that because... <laughs> It's, it sounds like instead of birds, you're hearing like plastic squeaks. Maybe you're hearing like plastic bags rustling instead of the water. But it's all been heavily manipulated to the point where it sounds eerily similar to the seashore. Like it's instantly recognizable. If you're not listening closely enough, you might just think it's the sound of the ocean. It is the sound of nature being recreated with something very unnatural, all of it being filtered through this really cool, complete, and thoughtful concept that the duo has created. Now, there were a few tracks that I found to be a little underwhelming, or maybe the flow wasn't quite as seamless or as uh, on the edge of my seat as I would have hoped. For example, the song Singing Tube was maybe not the most novel in the bunch, in my opinion. Matmos are certainly not the first artists out there to uh, create a singing tube of some sort, and I'm not sure if, if their application of it on this album is the most novel that I've ever heard, though I do like the way that they've kind of manipulated it to almost sound like a guitar at some points, a guitar being strummed. Still though, thought this was a really great album and I absolutely loved it. Really intriguing, unique, fun, and totally weird. And it's absolutely amazing that Matmos have been able to keep their creative energies up and keep them cutting edge so far into their career. I'm feeling a decent to a strong eight on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Dave record, 
Psychodrama. This is the debut full-length commercial album of Dave, or Santan Dave. He is from Streatham and has been building up the hype on this new record of his with a couple of EPs, a handful of singles as well. He is a guy who in his music is not afraid to address a lot of social and political issues. In fact, that is kind of what has defined his work up until this point, especially with breakthrough tracks like Question Time, a track addressing war and inequality as well as economic struggles and British politics. And given that this song is a pretty good track touching down on a lot of must-address issues, I went into this new album expecting something uh, pretty thoughtful, maybe a little dramatic as well, something trying to get to the heart of societal ills today. And that is definitely what psychodrama is, or at least attempting to be, but honestly, after numerous listens to this album, I can't say that it's, it's really resonating with me, despite me nodding in agreement with much of what Dave is saying on this record. For one, the instrumentals on this thing are absolutely generic. All of the glistening and super synthetic pianos, and swells all over this record. The beats on this album really have nothing novel or colorful about them. There's a bit of added atmosphere to a lot of the beats on this thing for a, a bit of theatrics, but much of the time the production isn't really evoking much of anything for me. The beats on this thing read kind of like instrumentals that you would find strewn about YouTube that uh, some hardcore Eminem or Hobson stand would be kind of downloading off of the website to spit some really introspective, meaningful shit over. The instrumentals just have this really cloying, overly sentimental quality about them that is an absolute turnoff. Occasionally throwing out completely unnecessary fluff, like the piano solo at the very end of Screwface Capital, and all the super pristine harps and strings on Leslie, I, I really cannot. And that vocal at the end of the track, you cannot tell me that that voice isn't basically something that you would usually hear on, like, a Machine Gun Kelly record. And again, all of this despite me liking a lot of what Dave is saying, especially the incredibly heart-wrenching story at the core of that song, Leslie. The girl in that song, her toxic relationship, her baby, the tragic finish of that song is... Uh, awe-inspiring, it's eye-widening, it is stomach-churning, really makes you reflect on our sad reality and uh, the unfortunate positions that uh, a lot of people are, are put in, especially women who are in abusive relationships as this track reflects on. Not only do I find the instrumentals lacking, but also Dave's delivery leaves a lot to be desired. A lot of the time he's rapping with this subdued, middle-of-the-road, kind of choked up delivery that runs more like spoken word than it does rapping, which I'm not necessarily against rappers who who tend to fall on that side of the fence. There are quite a few uh, who deliver in a more spoken word style that I think is pretty great. However, I don't find Dave's particular approach to that all that compelling. There's quite a bit of emotional substance to what he's saying in his tracks, but when it comes to his delivery, uh, it, it feels kind of emotionally flat. And listen, message and substance in your music is great. It's often what is the most lacking when it comes to the most popular artists out there today. But as a rapper, what you're saying can be just as important as how you are saying it. That's the other side of the coin. And when it comes to Dave, in that particular instance, much of what he's saying on this record may be 
sensible, oftentimes accurate, but still he comes off incredibly cliche in his wording, in his descriptions, in the philosophical points that he tries to pull out of his songs and stories too. Much of what I'm hearing here is so on the nose, it's less like I'm listening to a song and more like I'm listening to, um, I don't know, like a, a blog post or an advice column, or like an inspirational macro that uh, somebody age ranged 30 to 50 posted on Facebook. And again, I'm in agreement with most of what Dave is saying on this record. If it were uh, posted on Twitter or something somewhere, I'd probably either like it, respond, or retweet it. But there's something about the plain instrumentals and completely humdrum flows and his very average voice that is preventing the points he's trying to get across from really translating to a captivating song. I appreciate a lot of the personal themes on this record. I kind of admired what he was trying to do with the uh, whole overarching therapy thing as he's kind of having his therapist respond to the things that he's saying in these tracks, segueing from one moment to the next on the record. I think there are a lot of good qualities about this record. I can see why people are so excited about it. I can see why I've gotten so many demands to review it, but Personally, I'm incredibly indifferent toward uh, Dave's execution on this album, or rather I think it uh, uh, really kind of rained on my potential parade uh, for this album. I'm feeling a light to decent five on this thing. And it's time for me to go over how I listen to an album. Over the years, a lot of people have asked me to give some kind of insight into my process on reviewing and listening to albums. So I would like to think for my personal album reviewing process, there are kind of three key stages that I go through. First, there is a discovery phase. The discovery phase is super preliminary, it is super surface level. Essentially what we are talking about here is reaching the point where I decide what to review, which does involve quite a bit of listening, but there are a load of contextual factors that play into my decision making as well. If you guys are familiar, and you should be with just how saturated the internet is with content, how saturated the music market is with albums and singles and EPs, you know that they're like, hundreds of releases that I could be covering, listening to, talking about any given week. I'm aware of really only even a fraction of it, and even that fraction that I'm aware of is still far too big for me to cover entirely. And that's essentially where this discovery process comes in, me listening to a gauntlet of records, going through a lot of albums, deciding what is hitting, what's not, what I have a strong opinion on, what I'm kind of reacting to, whether that be positive, whether that be negative, whether I really have anything to say about the record or the artist's work. Because most of everything that I hear day in and day out, I don't really love it, I don't really hate it, I just think it's okay, and it's probably the same for all of you too. I really do have to dig through a lot of records, a lot of suggestions before I come to something that truly moves me and excites me. I do try to account for albums that are maybe a bit more subtle or rely a lot less on a visceral response, as some albums like that may not reveal what exactly is so great about them right off the bat. This part of the process, it's very messy, it's very fast, it is imperfect, as over the years there have been records that I found going back that I totally missed or I 
uh, forgot to keep track of, or initially I may have not been that interested in, but that's where I might take other things into account, like am I getting a lot of requests to talk about this record? Does it seem to have a passionate, authentic, organic following behind it? Because if so, maybe I am missing something and I should go back and try it one or two more times just to see if it ends up clicking with me. Even though this phase may not be the most detail-oriented, it is one of the harder phases because of how much I have to filter through. The second phase in this three-tiered thing I would like to think is uh, sort of like a surface-level phase. This is the point at which I'm pretty committed to reviewing an album, and I'm mostly just listening in a casual setting, not trying to overthink everything that I'm listening to, probably just having it on headphones and doing other things like you guys might be doing when you're listening to music, though I try not to engage in anything that would distract my mind too much from what I'm listening to. Mostly just like busy work or like, you know, working out, exercise, that kind of thing. I might take a walk as well. Essentially, I'm just trying to soak the album in on a nice pair of headphones, not try to write or jot anything down unless I feel like I have some kind of like stroke of genius or whatever. But again, not writing too much because I'm not trying to commit myself to an opinion or an idea right out of the gate because I am just starting to listen to the album. I'm still figuring it out and I'm not 100% on what my opinion is yet. I'm essentially observing what are the most obvious characteristics of the album that I'm listening to. What's the length? What's the style? What's the genre? What's the mood? Is it sad, aggressive, happy, anywhere in between emotion-wise? What is the recording quality like? Are there any obvious musical or stylistic comparisons that are coming to mind. How many tracks are there? Are there skits? What are the performances like? Is the energy of the album intense? Is it laid back? Is it kind of trippy? Basically trying to make note of the same sorts of things that you guys might tell me if I asked you uh, in 10 seconds, write down every word you would use to describe my shirt. It's red, it has buttons, it's plaid, it looks like it's made of this kind of material. Is it baggy, is it slim fit? All that kind of stuff. So after we've moved through this and I basically gathered all of these very surface level observations, we move on to what is essentially the in-depth and the writing phase. This is the point at which I'm listening to the album the most. I'm also listening to the album pretty intensely with no other major distractions. This is the moment where I've mostly figured out what my opinion is and I'm kind of hammering out the details of that and pulling from the album what exactly makes it tick and what is driving me to feel the way that I do about it. I'm trying to make note of what the production is like, what is the mix like, what are the progressions of the song structures like, how does the entire album play from front to back, is there a theme, does it flow well, does every song sound the friggin' same. I will not only be listening on headphones during this phase, but I'll also be trying to sample the record on like a larger stereo so I can get a fuller feel for the record. Now during this phase of the listening process, my opinions on albums can change change pretty drastically, as there are some records that do sound really good when you put them on in the background. They have a nice vibe, they have a nice aesthetic, but when you dive in deeper to what are the lyrics saying, like how do the tracks progress, like what is the structure of the song? And listen, I think aesthetics are great in all artistic mediums and they are an essential piece of uh, sort of finding your artistic voice. But for some albums and some musical acts, unfortunately, once you pull back that aesthetics mask, you kind of go beyond that, you find that uh, the inner workings of what you're observing maybe isn't really that great, isn't really that substantive. You know, might just be basic as hell. I'm not going to go through a list here or anything, but there are some records that do 
uh, sort of feel like, whoa, this could be like an 8 out of 10 or one of my favorite albums of the year when I'm in that more surface level stage. But once I kind of move past that and I'm listening to only the album with no other distractions and the record has to hold up as a main course, not just a side dish to whatever else I'm doing, in that context of closer scrutiny, some records just don't hold up. Or I find that some records are pretty good at bringing a thematic sound, a, a big idea, maybe even a distinct personality, but then the details buried underneath all of it are not really that interesting. Which I understand that not all people listen to music that way and that's totally fine, but honestly Honestly, as someone who reviews music formally, who covers it for a living, I would think that my audience would think less of me if they were to know that I only listen to like albums on in the background and when I'm doing my reviews I'm not really paying attention. And again, casual listening is fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with casual listening. I like listening to records casually, my favorite ones, when I'm not doing work. But when I am working and when I am reviewing, that's not really the mode that I'm in. Over the course of this final section of the listening process, I will also be writing down a lot of notes, a lot of descriptions, comparisons if I can make them or if I feel like they're relevant. I'll try to write down an intro as well to the entire review. I'm not really going to go into what exactly is my writing process as of right now. I'm just letting you know that during this phase, I'm also doing some writing too, to kind of gather together and more solidify exactly what it is I'm, I'm thinking, hearing, and feeling so that I'm not just continually listening to the album and, and kind of just losing track of what it is I think and feel because I'm not like making note of it. And I think that's everything I have to say as of right now. <laughs> in terms of my listening process when it comes to the albums that I review on my channel uh, pretty much every day. Hopefully you guys got something out of this video and, and just a, a bit more of an understanding of what it is I do and how I do it. You're the best. Hey buddy, did you hear the news? It's track review. And it is time for a track review. Going to put down some thoughts on this new Logic track single, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Logic's <laughs> studio album is on the way. And uh, yeah, he's just sort of dropped this on Twitter, told us that this one is written in blood, which is uh, pretty goth. Let's, let's just give it a try, give it a shot, see what uh, Bobby Billboard, Bobby Tarantino is... Uh, <laughs> Is offering this time around. Uh, ba bam. Okay, there we go. New track from Logic. Let's start with the sound of this track. The instrumental is probably the best thing it has going for it. I love the very jazzy, smooth. Uh, almost rainfall-like keys on the track, the soulful background vocals, the super chunky kind of old-school boom-bappy beat, uh, but it's kind of uh, paced in a somewhat laid-back and relaxed way. Uh, there are a lot of good things about the instrumental on this track. Logic's flow is not really all that bad either. If you've been listening to the guy, though, for a while, uh, what he offers on this track isn't really anything too different or revolutionary or anything like that. Um, it's smooth, it's, uh, you know, it's a nice, somewhat speedy pace at a few points, and uh, just kind of vibes really well along with the instrumental. Uh, but then let's go to the lyrics, and this this is really kind of where the bulk of my issues with, with logic on this track sit. And I get that in a vacuum, the lyrics on this track are okay, they're passable. It's not genius or anything like that, but here's what I'm kind of getting a little fed up with. 
it's like logic can't do anything other than use his music to either boast, you know, which I mean, a lot of rappers do that. It's, it's just what it is. So either boast or turn his tracks into these pseudo woke generic advice columns where a lot of what he's dealing with is filtered through this ultra specific experience that he's dealing with of I'm famous now and people make comparisons of my music to other people's music that I don't like and they say I'll never be good and they hate me and that makes me feel bad. And it's just really obnoxious that Logic is at a point now where it's like everything needs to be urgent, needs to be a PSA, needs to be like, you have to hear this, you have to take in the message that I'm giving you because it's important. When really at the end of the day, you're not really saying anything that you haven't advised us on before and truly you're not going so deep into your analyzation of these issues or anything greater than these issues, honestly. At the end of the day, like all you're really selling your fans on is this really um, I don't know, corny, uh, one dimensional motivational poster. But you know, if motivational posters didn't work and they didn't motivate anybody and they didn't mean anything to anyone, then I guess they wouldn't exist. And this track already has quite a few views on it. So somebody has got to be getting something out of it. And it is time for a track review. Tame Impala, Kevin Parker, brand new record on the way, brand new single, Patience, Nice cover art with a mixer and some drums. Quickly, before I get into this track, I do want to mention that uh, we have a tour coming up in May, Speaking Engagement Tour, West Coast Tour, link down below to get tickets. All right, so track track review, track review, track review. review. I did like what Tame Impala was doing on Currents quite a bit, not my favorite Tame record. I do think I like uh, Lonerism a little bit more than that album, but still. Uh, Wondering if Kevin and company are going to... Uh, I guess, continue down this road? Uh, Will they continue the synthetic thing? Will they bring some of the more psych rock vibes back? Will they go in an entirely new direction? Uh, We will see. I know Kevin has become a little in demand behind the scenes, collaborating with a lot of big artists, uh, bringing his talent for uh, producing and composing and uh, pulling together uh, great instrumental bits to a a lot of records uh, that desperately needed it. And uh, yeah, let's just kind of see what he's doing for himself, for the Tame Impala name uh, this time around. Single, Patience, Ba-Bam. Eh. It's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's kind of a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag single. Let's start off with some of the stylistic influences going into this. There was definitely a heaping helping of disco coming out of the beat. Also a bit of a glam vibe coming out of the uh, very pretty and ritzy pianos featured on this thing. I would say a touch of synth pop too. I was catching a bit of Elton John off of this. I was catching even a bit of Toro y Moi off of this because there is a huge washy, trippy, kind of nostalgia factor going into this track. And uh, there was kind of a nasally quality to the vocals on this thing that, again, did remind me of Toro, did remind me of some of Chaz's singing. The mix on this thing is absolutely wet. It is drenched with effects, whether you're talking about uh, cavernous reverbs, uh, some very subtle phasers as well. Also, the instrumental is incredibly groovy, and the groove is unquestionably the best thing this track has going for it. If it wasn't for this beat, If it wasn't for this rhythmic pulse that Kevin Parker has laced into this song, 
it wouldn't really be much of a song at all because honestly, uh, the tune on this thing is pretty flat. It's pretty non-existent. I did not really come away from this track wanting to hum or even if I wanted to uh, recall the vocal melody to this track. I can remember the uh, coming out of the keyboards, but uh, the vocal melody is just really uh, almost non-existent. It's just barely there. It's so faint, no presence, and kind of seems so off the cuff uh, uh, to the point where it's, you know, there's there's really not much to it. And as much as I do like how trippy and dense uh, instrumentally this track is much of the time, there was kind of a weird instrumental bridge right after the halfway point on this song where it didn't sound mixed or uh, sort of put together in the best way. kind of came off like a traffic jam. Generally, though, across the track, the mix is pretty good. The instrumental is uh, very lush, very pretty. I just wish there was a better tune or a song at the core of all of this. I mean, maybe this track will hit a little different hit a little harder once we have the greater context of this album. And hey, who knows, maybe all of the tracks on this record have a bit of a dance, disco, grooves, dreamy, nostalgic vibe going on. It will all reinforce itself and maybe it will just sound a bit better or make a bit more sense. And I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Not that crazy about this new Tame Impala single, unfortunately. Is is the California singer, pop artist, an industry plant? The closer that we get to the release of Billie Eilish's new record, the larger the conversation about whether or not she's a label-controlled puppet. Is she someone who has a faked origin story? Is she inauthentic? The larger I see this conversation get. And if we go back into the earliest years of artist, an industry plant. The closer that we get to the release of Billie Eilish's new record, the larger the conversation about whether or not she's a label-controlled puppet. Is she someone who has a faked origin story? Is she inauthentic? Hey, 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 everyone. Anthony Fantano here, Internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And is Billie Eilish an industry plant? The closer that we get to the release of Billie Eilish's new record, the larger the conversation about whether or not she's a label-controlled puppet. Is she someone who has a faked origin story? Is she inauthentic? The larger I see this conversation get. And if we go back into the earliest years of her career, we can see that she uh, has multiple songs that are either written by or co-written by her brother. She has family members who are actors and industry connected. Before she had that much music out, she was signed to Interscope Records. Currently, we are being inundated with all of this press, all of these interviews, all of this media exposure that somebody so early in their career doesn't typically get. I'm not totally sure why. Maybe it's because of decades of, of marketing artists in this way, but there's kind of this unhealthy expectation amongst music listening audiences that uh, the, the bands and the artists that they listen to, they have to be authentic and relatable and maybe have a, a captivating origin story, maybe even go through this like rags to riches progression as they succeed in the music industry. Like they're just a regular person living their regular person life. And then one day out of just like a passion for music, they start recording and they just start randomly dropping tracks on the internet and then they just blow up. 
oh my God. And for whatever reason, this expectation is like inordinately applied to music. Like nobody's looking at Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born and saying, hey, wait a second, this guy's actually not a country guy. He's he's the son of a stockbroker. I mean, yes, there are musicians who I have covered on my YouTube channels that I love, that I think are great, and they come from working class backgrounds, and they have grinded their way into a music career. But honestly, most people who I know who are in that position, in the grander scheme of things, they're still relatively obscure. It's more the rule than the exception in my experience that when I meet musicians in the industry, they have uh, some family who are musicians, or they have some family who are industry connected, or they came into the game with quite a bit of inherited wealth. And you have musicians who do their best to uh, kind of hide that and avoid that conversation. And you have dudes who honestly, uh, like Vampire Weekend, you know, being uh, from the Ivy League cloth has kind of been their whole aesthetic. And look, having quite a bit of money is not exactly the same thing as like being directly industry connected. But when you consider how much time and effort and outside help, and yes, even money that building a music career from scratch can take, having the ability to dedicate yourself totally to making and recording music without having to worry about things like buying food or paying the rent, it's, it's a luxury not everyone can afford. The likelihood that someone from a lower or lower middle class lifestyle is going to have the means to learn music on their own, buy instruments, buy a computer, buy editing software, pay for time in the studio, do all of this stuff without outside help, without a label, without succumbing to the economic pressures of just existing. Yeah, the chances of all of that are low, even if you're just doing like a, a little lo-fi indie rock thing. So yes, there are a great deal of musicians in the industry through either having proximity to the industry or quite a bit of money before getting into the industry, they do have kind of a leg up. But honestly, I don't really think it means that much in terms of their long-term popularity, because even if you do make it to the top, it's still a sink or swim situation. I am hit with PR emails and pitches all the time in my inbox and through other corners of the internet too, uh, from artists and musicians who come from backgrounds that are actually not too unlike Billy's. And a lot of them just don't have the songs or the sound or the look or the album they come out with is just a dud. So being an industry plant or coming into the game with quite a bit of advantages, it doesn't necessarily guarantee you a career. People have to like your music. So being placed into the limelight by the industry doesn't necessarily take away from your artistic abilities or the artistic abilities of the people that you work with, nor does it prevent you from being relatable, uh, in my opinion. Because if you were to ask me whether or not Billie Eilish is relatable in the broadest sense, I would actually say yes. I think she is relatable in that she is navigating this whole fame thing as well as nearly any teenager thrown into it would. And I've said this before in videos, and I'll say it again in this one, but this whole industry plant term, this label, it is a recent term for something that has been an industry standard for a long, long, long time. <laughs> because for decades, record labels have been scouting talent have been pairing musicians and bands up with songwriters and co-songwriters, have been handing them songs from other people, and have also had session musicians come in and play all the instruments on whatever record the band is putting out. From the world-class look them up to 2019, that's pretty much been the standard. Yes, there are pockets of the music industry where that is not the case. You're talking about uh, more of the 
punk bands and hardcore bands out there and so on and so forth. Yes, there are independent musicians out there. Yes, there are DIYers out there who are just totally doing their own thing and you can't control them and you can't direct them. They're lone wolves. But listen, for the most part, it's not in the label's best interest to foster that kind of stuff because while it is great that labels do their best to, I guess, if an artist kind of blows up out of nowhere and they have an organic following and people really love their stuff, uh, you know, jump in there, try to sign to the label, hand them a big fat contract. But here's the thing. If you have a giant following that you can basically take anywhere, uh, the label is entering that conversation from a position of, of weakness. The label is most likely going to make more money off you if they can hand you a dinky contract before you're famous, before you're popular, and they can essentially control your ascent upward on the ladder of popularity and basically own you right from the start. So is Billie Eilish an industry plant if we were to go strictly by the kind of vague standards for what being an industry plant is, uh, yeah, pretty much. But still, by those very same standards, you could lump the Beatles or the Clash into that same category because they, as well, were very heavily groomed on their way up the ladder by the music industry. Some of the most popular and beloved music out there is uh, really more top-down than it is ground up. But honestly, at the end of the day, really what's going to matter to me is whether or not Billie Eilish's new record is good. And that's going to mean quite a bit to her fans, too. I mean, I know there are some hardcore stands out there who... Uh, uh, would just love to hear her burp into the microphone for like 45 minutes or whatever. But ultimately, as a musician, Billy's music is going to be what defines her. Because here's the thing, while the magazine spreads and the outfits are cool and nice and cutting edge and, and all that stuff, uh, there are going to be people, I would say, you know, at least 7 to 10 to 20 of them every few years who can easily replace you on that front. There's a, a rotating door for people who can fulfill that role. It's really whether or not Billy's music withstands the test of time. That's going to truly decide whether or not are we going to care about her and her music five years from now? The last thing that I want to say is a lot of the conversations around artists being industry plants, at least from as far as I can tell, uh, seems like it stems from... Uh, either this uh, exaggerated sense of fairness amongst the audience or maybe even uh, like a subconscious awareness of uh, general inequities in society, thinking that uh, if an artist is signed to a label without that much of a following or exposure or because of connections they had, uh, that you didn't earn that, you don't deserve that. <sighs> and, you know, maybe maybe in a certain sense that is, that is correct and that is true. However, you know, if, if this is something that truly, truly, truly bothers you, um, I would encourage you to maybe look into how, <laughs> I guess, uh, economic inequities affect other parts of society in much, much, much worse ways other than some person whose music that you don't really care for all that much, I don't know, having a hit record. So I think I'm going to leave it at that. Streaming numbers have replaced review scores for the casual listener. I don't know if they've really replaced review scores for the casual listener, as I don't know if the casual listener ever really cared about review scores, but it certainly has replaced the charts, because why would somebody go to see what the most popular song or record is on the billboard uh, when they can just like go on YouTube or go on Spotify and, and see how many plays it's gotten there to gauge whether or not something is popular, interesting, because believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there that do seek out music and do seek out artists based on whether or not uh, other people are listening to it too, you know, based on whether or not it's popular. <laughs>
And that has been the latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank all of you for listening and tuning in. Make sure that whatever platform you are on listening to this podcast, you are rating and subscribing, leaving a comment or review. Shout out to Jonah, who assembles every one of these episodes as well as he does. Also, head over to theneedledrop.com. Also, youtube.com slash theneedledrop youtube.com slash Fantano to not miss a single piece of content that we do. Hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop a Fantano on Instagram. And uh, we will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Anthony Fantano, needle drop podcast forever. forever.